You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. Well, in many ways, the entire Bible drives us forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22. It's here that we see the consummation of all things and the new heaven and the new earth. I mean, the the very Bible, just by its very nature, it begins in Genesis chapter 1 with the creation account. And, of course, these six days, so to speak, of creation are recorded for us in one chapter of God's Word. It's as if God is declaring with all his authority that the creation account itself is merely a setup, a backdrop, an establishing shot to understand the horrible nature of the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3. And that God, as he proclaimed in chapter 3 verse 15 of Genesis, that uh, one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of Satan, that God was proclaiming that there would be a new opportunity and that God would come and restore and redeem all that was lost. I mean, God had told man, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And that's exactly what took place. Death entered in to the human race at that point. And the rest of the Bible is basically a record of God's involvement with mankind throughout the generations. And as we see year after year, decade after decade, century after century, uh, millennia after millennia pass by, God has worked and moved forward to bring us to a place where we could get to Revelation chapter 21, see the end of all of those ages, see the judgment seat before the, the, the great white throne of God, and to see a new heaven and a new earth established forever and ever and ever, which which would be an incorruptible place, a place without tear, a place without trial, a place without sin or the potential of sin. And so that's where we are moving towards biblically, but that's where we are moving towards historically. And as one of God's children, I could not be more excited about that particular reality. And so Revelation chapter 21 is a chance for us to study, to observe, to witness uh, the new heaven and new earth that God is going to establish. He says in verse 1 of chapter 21, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. Now this description that we're going to read in this chapter, we have to remember. Uh, I mean, this is John doing the best he can to describe this place. And some of these descriptions, I'm sure, will fall far short. I mean, just imagine for a moment. Right now we have uh, our music. It's just so available to us. You know, we, we can stream it online. We have devices that are able to store, you know, thousands and thousands of audio files and, and thousands of, of, of albums and all of that. 
Uh, imagine attempting to, I mean, I'm watching my children right now and they're growing up in this age, you know, in our home, we have the ability through our computer and through the internet to access, you know, thousands and thousands of albums uh, for a small subscription fee each month. Whatever music they discover, they can listen to it nearly instantaneously. And, and to try to describe to them a different era, you know, where there were tapes and CDs and all that. It's just, it's just hard for them to comprehend. But imagine for a moment trying to take Beethoven from a past generation and explain to him an iPod. You know, a device that can store thousands of songs on it. I mean, it would be difficult for you to put it into terms that he could understand and rejoice over. And here, I think, is very similar with John's description of the new heaven and the new earth. You know, we see the description, we read the description, but, but he must simply be scratching the surface of our human understanding. But the first thing about this place that I wanted you to see is the newness of it the newness of it. And uh, we'll see in verse 5, you know, that he makes all things new. So I'll talk a little bit more about it. But it is a fresh place. It is a new place. And as I said, I'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. But just think about the grace of God and that there is even such a thing as the new heaven and the new earth. Here we are in this fallen, corrupted, broken world. It is not as it intended to be. Uh, it, it is not as God desired and planned for it to be, but he planned for it to be a place where man could express his free will. And in order for that to occur, uh, there had to be the potential for a very real fall. And of course, that very real fall did occur. And so just the grace of God and that there is a new heaven and a new earth. For, he says in verse 1, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Peter had written in 2 Peter chapter 3 that a day is coming where the heavens and the earth will, with a great noise and fervent heat, melt away, pass away. And, uh, God has already promised us, you know, in Isaiah 65, verse 17, a new heaven and a new earth. And there are hints throughout scripture that God would do this, but we see it recorded for us in chapter 21 that this is what's coming, a new heaven and a new earth. And I love the way Peter asks the question in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. He says, listen, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and, and godliness? In other words, you fill in the blank, O people, but what kind of person ought you to be in response to the reality that all of these things will be dissolved, that they will all burn up? And so John records, new heaven, new earth, first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And in one sense, out there on the Isle of Patmos, perhaps this was a refreshing thing, uh, but it also is an indicator to us that our bodies will com be completely different in a powerful, wonderful, glorified state, because right now our bodies actually need the ocean, that 
uh, recycling of the water, the hydrological systems of the earth will be unnecessary in the new earth. And so the sea is no more. And I saw, he says, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so John just notices the intense detail and, and preparation of this particular city. And that's important to note. I mean, uh, of course, a bride on her wedding day, every last detail is taken care of. She's gone through all of the beautifications she can go through. She is looking her best on that day of her wedding. And John just says, listen, this place, it is prepared. Jesus told his disciples, behold, I go away to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And so uh, Jesus has been preparing and building and, and all of that and readying a habitation for his people. Just absolutely beautiful. This place is prepared. And in verse 3, he goes on and says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, this is one of the first glorious things that I want you to see about uh, this eternal dwelling place. It says there that he will dwell with them and they will be his people. Uh, no one has ever seen the fullness of God at, at any time. John 1 verse 18 tells us no one has seen God at any time. You know, the, the, just the fullness of who God is. No one has ever taken him in in all of his glory here on earth. And, and our bodies are going to be changed and reconfigured to be able to handle this full fellowship with the presence of God. And, and for his part, this is what God has been longing for since he walked in the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit. God was looking for fellowship with man. He was longing to be in relationship with man. For him to be our God and for us to be able to dwell with him. This is what God was desiring and longing for. He was looking for a people to lavish his love and his grace and his mercy. His tender uh, kindness and loving kindness upon. And, and, and here in heaven... The primary characteristic is that there in that place, God will be with us and uh, we will be his people and he will be with us as our God. And just absolutely beautiful. I mean, do you know, oh believer, that, that, that God desires fellowship with you. He, he longs for it now and he's made a way for that fellowship through the blood of Jesus. He longs to know you and to be in relationship with you. He longs to spend time with you and to, you know, partake of, you know, relationship and community and fellowship with you. But a day is coming in heaven when that relationship and that fellowship will be so beautiful, pure, and intense. Just wonderful. 
And he, verse 4, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And so every tear dealt with, no more death and sorrow, crying and pain. They will all meet their destruction. You know, people, of course, ask from time to time, you know, what is up with the pain that's in the world? Why is there such pain? Why doesn't God do anything about it? And what we should see here in verse 4 is that God has done something about it. It is up to God to decide what to do about it and how he wants to deal with it. But he has dealt with it fully and he has made a way for all of that sin and death and sickness and pain and crying, mourning. All of those former things will be completely passed away. They will be past tense in this new heaven and in this new earth. What a glorious place this is going to be. Can, can you imagine what it will be like to be in the presence of God without even the ability to sin? Your free will, respected and regarded. You are not a robot, but, but your sinful tendencies and nature fully removed. You will not be able to rebel, but you won't want to be uh, in rebellion against God. It will just be this beautiful, wonderful place without the potential for harm and sin. And he says in verse 5, and he says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now this is the line. I told you I would refer to this again, but I absolutely love this. God speaks and says, I make all things new. And this is in the present tense. You could say it like this. God is saying, I am continually making all things new. And, and so for, for all that we perhaps don't know about heaven, we know quite a bit. But I think it's just, you know, darkened because our understanding has not been enlightened yet once we get there we'll we'll just have our jaws dropped and we'll say oh that's what this place is all about and that's what this meant as i read it in revelation 21 and 22 but what you should see is that god is saying that this is a place of perpetual newness which is wonderful because obviously we'll be there for a very long time you think about the billions and billions of years that will be dwelling in the presence of God. It probably won't be counted like that in a linear fashion. Perhaps it'll be a different kind of dimension, uh, accounting system for time. But there will be a freshness and a newness there and in it forever. You know what it's like here on earth in our timeline, right? You know, we, we will have maybe Christmas morning and You'll open up a gift and there's newness to it, right? It's exciting. The, the thing works. It's cutting edge. Maybe you get some technology or whatever. And, and it's great, right? But as time goes by, eventually it becomes dated. It becomes old. It becomes corroded. And eventually the excitement over what you received initially is gone. I mean... Every car that someone looks at and says, I hate this car, at a previous time, 
It was a brand new car that someone was so excited to be driving. Those first few miles, the euphoria of something new, right? Newness is so fresh and exciting. Heaven will always exist in a state of newness. It's not going to be a place of boredom or apathy or, you know, uh, just tiredness. It's going to be a wonderful place of absolute newness. And so he says, I make all things new. And, and then he goes on in verse 5 and says, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and, the, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so God declares, he says, listen, it's done. It's done. You know, I, I've, I've got this offer out there that without payment, anyone who wants to can drink of the spring of the water of life without payment. What's the requirement? He says, to the thirsty. You just have to thirst for me. And Jesus in John chapter 5 would tell the religious leaders, listen, I know that you don't receive me because you do not love God. I think at the end of the day, it just boils down to this. Does a human being, no matter what they know about God, no matter what their revelation is, no matter whether they're the guy out in the jungle that's never heard the gospel, the question is, is there a love for God inside of their hearts? With what they know about God, is there a love for him? Now, if you have a love for God in your heart and you hear the gospel, you will believe the gospel. And you will trust God, the God of the gospel. But, but here he just says, listen, the, the, here's the question. Do you have that thirst inside of you? Do you have that thirst inside of you? And so here God is announcing, he says, listen, the redemption plan is fully complete. From Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses to David to Jesus to the church age through the tribulation and through the millennial reign of Christ, it's all completed to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And, and, and he says, listen, uh, you know, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I'll be his God. He'll be my son. But then he speaks out against the cowardly, faithless, detestable murderers, the sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, liars. He says their portion is in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. If this is their practice, habitual attitude in life, then they are not my children, God would say. And that should be a stern warning to any who study and read God's word. Then verse 9 came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the last seven plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride and the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel. Uh, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 
gates angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And so uh, the angel refers to the bride, and uh, we've already seen here in the book of Revelation a woman who is a city, right? We saw Babylon, the mother of harlots. Here we see another woman, a bride who is a city, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a wonderful description. You, you see these foundations, uh, you know, 12 foundations in this city, which reminds us of Hebrews 11, verse 9 and 10, which tells us that Abraham dwelt in tents, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You know, just a, a beautiful thing. And, and Abraham was waiting for this city. And, and, and I'd be remiss not to say we ought to wait for this city as well. You know, there are so many things that we can pour our time and our effort and our energy into. But this is an investment that will not return void. This is, this is an investment that pays huge dividends. And so you notice also in verse 14 that on the foundations were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And uh, this reminds us that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2 verse 20. And it's interesting, the early church, what did they continue steadfastly in? Partly the apostles' doctrine, the teaching of the apostles as they taught the Old Testament and wrote the New Testament or were responsible for the writing of it. Uh, the church was built on these, you know, uh, the witness of the apostles and prophets. And so there you have them, their names on the 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem. And the one who spoke with me, verse 15, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. This reminds us a little bit of back in the book of Ezekiel, the measuring of the last temple. And the city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia or furlongs. Its length and width and height are equal. So it's a city that is shaped like a cube. And it's, you know, each length or width or height is 12,000 stadia, which is about 1,500 miles. And so it appears that this city is 1,500 miles wide, long, and tall, uh, like a cube or a pyramid. And, you know, just incredible. And the, um, the amount of people that could dwell in this would just be uh, incredible. And so uh, he measured, verse 17, its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So the wall is, by this estimation, 144 cubits. You've got a, a wall that is almost, you know, could be up to 250 feet thick. And he goes on in verse 18 and says, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. 
The first was Japs, Jasper, the second Sapphire, the third uh, Agate, the fourth Emerald, the fifth Onyx, the sixth Carnelian, the seventh Chrysolite, the eighth Beryl, the ninth Topaz, the tenth Chrysoprase, the eleventh Jacinth, the twelfth Amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. Think of that. And the street of the city was pure gold transparent as glass so just a pure wonderful beautiful place and so you've got all these wonderful materials that here you know are the best of life here these are luxuries here on earth but they are construction materials in heaven and you have these 12 pearls <laughs> just so incredible these pearls are so huge that one pearl is the gate to the heavenly jerusalem and uh, pearls, of course, are made beautiful by an oyster's pain. Sand inside, you know, they are agitated and produce a pearl. And Jesus, you know, takes something painful and covers us and our sin and turns us into something beautiful. And uh, here you have that picture there in heaven, the pearls that make uh, the gate. And it says there in verse 21 that, that uh the 12 gates. There are 12 gates, 12 foundations, 12 angels, 12 tribes, uh, 12 apostles, 12,000 uh, stadia or furlongs. Uh, the wall's thickness, you know, seems to be 12 by 12, 12 stones, 12 pearl gates, 12 fruits. We'll see in chapter 22, verse 2. And so throughout scripture, 12 symbolizes uh, government. And so here we have just a new place, a new government, a new world that we're living in. And I saw verse 22, no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. Now, there's no need for a temple to go worship God because God is himself present and he will be our temple there in that city. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory of the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anything or anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so here we see the glory of God is very present in this new Jerusalem, in this heavenly city. It's just a full revelation of God. We Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that right now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. We know now in part, but then we will know just as we are known. And one final note, it's interesting you see these nations and these kings that are going in and out. Nothing that's unclean will enter the New Jerusalem. That's because outside of the New Jerusalem, there won't be anything that's unclean. So anything that could come in or go out will be clean. This is heaven. Uh, but you see nations and kings. And, and I love this. There's no reason not to believe that these aren't heavenly nations and heavenly kings with cultures and arts and languages and athletics and sciences and trade and craft and food and sights and travel and ethnicities and customs. 
you know, without without the need for policing and, and suppressing of evil, this will be a wonderful place to explore and live and partake in the glory of God. It's just going to be a wonderful and incredible place for us to exist. We will truly be at peace and just experience such wonderful joy in this place. I can't wait to be there. And I hope that you are investing in it with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.